Welcome to the MetPro Method podcast. I am your host, Crystal O'Keefe. And today I'm joined by Dr. Stacey Sims. Dr. Sims is a forward-thinking international exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist who aims to revolutionize exercise, nutrition, and performance for women. She's directed research programs at Stanford, AUT University, and the University of Waikato, focusing on female athlete health and performance and pushing the dogma to improve research on all women. Dr. Sims is also the author of the 2016 best-selling book, Roar, How to Match Your Food and Fitness to Your Unique Female Physiology for Optimum Performance, Great Health, and a Strong Lean Body for Life. And her latest book, Next Level, your guide to kicking ass, feeling great, and crushing goals through menopause and beyond. I have read both, and I asked Dr. Sims here today to discuss specifically menopause and weight loss. Dr. Sims, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, wow. Thanks for having me. I'm like, whoa, who's that person you're talking about? (laughs) (laughs) That amazing person is you. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. So how do you explain how women and men are different when it comes to losing weight? Like at a very high level, I mean. Okay. At a high level, when we look from basic biology, We know that there are specific genes that are encoded for men to be able to survive well and lean up and get stronger and fitter when there's low calorie availability. But for women, we have the genetic coding to put on body fat and to conserve and have our metabolism slow down in the eye that women are responsible for carrying forward the species. So we're responsible for having babies. Yeah. So as a woman, I feel like, oh, that's always on our shoulders, right? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's true. So true. So then when I was reading your book, The Next Level specifically, you talk a lot about perimenopause and menopause. And I feel like there's a lot of people that actually don't know that there is perimenopause as opposed to menopause. Can you explain like what the difference between those two things are? Yeah, for sure. So just the same as if we backtrack and think about puberty, you see personality changes and a little bit of body comp changes in young girls before they actually have their period, right? right? So we're seeing these changes in upsurge of estrogen and some progesterone before the period starts. Now we move forward to the other end of the spectrum. We start to have changes in our hormones as they start to decline before we actually hit that one point in time called menopause. So unfortunately, everyone's like, oh, menopause, and they lump everything together. But perimenopause is anywhere from the five to 10 years before you have that one point on the calendar, menopause, that marks 12 months of no periods. Wow. And it's a time in perimenopause where we have the biggest changes in body composition. It's not after, it's before. Wow. So it can be five to 10 years long, and that's when you're seeing all your body compositions. So a lot of times I will talk to women and I'll be like, so what's going on like with you and in your cycle? Like, where are you in that? And they'll be like, oh, well, I haven't hit menopause, so I'm good. But I'm gaining all this weight. And it could be it's possible then that they might be in perimenopause and just not even know it. Exactly. Because we start to see the biggest changes around the four ish years before menopause actually hits. Prior to we might see women might be regularly cycling. right? So they're having the same length of their cycle. But initially, they're seeing 
non-responsiveness to their diet and their exercise. Like, why is this not working? A year ago, everything was great. I was doing all this stuff. I was losing weight. I was putting muscle on. It was great. But now I can't. What am I doing wrong? And people will go through the checklist of, oh, I must be eating too much. I must be highly stressed. But it could be that fast within a year where all of a sudden you have a ratio change of estrogen progesterone. You might start to have more anovulatory cycles. So you're not dropping an egg, but that doesn't change your cycle length. Oh, okay. And then we start to see initially changes in the bleed pattern. So you might start to see, okay, my cycle's still the same length. It's bang on 31 days. But instead of having seven-ish days of bleed, now it's only two. Or there might be some spotting and it's not as heavy. Or you might be unfortunate to have super heavy bleeding and then it tapers off. But there's a change in your normal bleed pattern the more you get into perimenopause. And then you might start to see changes in the cycle length. Okay. Which all makes sense when you think about it. Like your body's kind of gearing up to shut things down, so to speak. But why is it that women seem to have more trouble losing weight once they hit menopause? Or is that because their body composition has changed and they don't realize it's not necessarily that it's harder? Or is it a mixture of both? Well, when we look at what estrogen and progesterone do, they're more than just reproductive hormones. They affect every system in our body. So estrogen is women's testosterone. So it helps us build lean mass, keep lean mass. It's also responsible for like bone mineral density. It's responsible for what we call glucose homeostasis or regulating your blood glucose. Progesterone, same thing. Progesterone is responsible for activating parasympathetic responses within the brain to relax and allow your body to come down so cortisol is lower. You see that estrogen and progesterone work together for really changing the way our body relates to blood glucose and how we store carbohydrate. We start having changes in these ratios. Every system gets affected. So we start to see a little bit more insulin resistance. We start to see less muscle mass gain, and we start to see more muscle mass atrophy. We start to see more belly fat accumulation, and it's because we're having these changes in the ratios. And if we have an anovulatory cycle, we don't produce as much progesterone, so we become estrogen dominant over that period of that one cycle. And then it might change again because then all of a sudden, hey, we have an ovulatory cycle, so now there's more progesterone, less estrogen. And the body's trying to figure it out. And in the meantime, every system is being affected. But primarily, we see this difference in our lean mass going down and our fat mass coming up with these changes in the ratios of the hormones. Wow. I mean, when you hear it kind of laid out like that, it feels very depressing. <laughs> no, there's stuff we can do. This is the thing. This is the thing. I know. And a lot of women will go to their GP or they'll go to their natural path or something like that. And they'll be like, I don't understand what's happening. And they'll be put in this category of rushing woman syndrome or you're just highly stressed. You're not sleeping well. But one of the symptoms of perimenopause is not sleeping well. And so people put it all, oh, you need to really work on your sleep hygiene. But we need to backtrack. The primary basis of all the things that are happening is because we're having these changes in our ratios and we're having these fluctuations of hormones that our body's not quite used to. So what we need to do is we need to look externally from the body. We need to find some kind of external stress that we can add to the body so that the adaptations support the body the way the hormones used to support the body. So we do this through specific adaptations to exercise and nutrition. 
We can't do with just one or the other. We have to work together with both of them. So if we look specifically at what estrogen does, we look estrogen stimulates the myosin filament of our contractile proteins. And I see you have a confused look on your face and I'm sure other people do, that's fine. So if we go to make a muscle contraction, we have two primary protein filaments. So they're like a ladder where they come together to make a muscle contraction. So when we look at a muscle contraction, you need both actin and myosin to kind of grab onto each other to pull the fibers together for contraction. Okay. When we start to have a misstep in our estrogen, the myosin filament takes a hit. So it's not as strong. It doesn't get as stimulated. There's not the synthesis or the messaging to keep that myosin filament going. So this is why we start to lose lean mass. We start to lose our power and our strength. So the external stress is looking at how do we stimulate that myosin? How do we get a nerve stimulus from muscle contraction? It's to lifting heavy. It's not this body weight stuff. It's not the eight to 15 reps. It's that power-based training, that one to six rep range where you're doing presets, three to five exercises, lots of rest in between because you're trying to stimulate the nerve to muscle connection. If you're stimulating nerve to muscle connection with a really heavy load, then you're getting the nerve to try to recruit as many fibers as possible to contract simultaneously to lift that load. If you have that nerve stimulus, then that means that myosin has to work. That means that there's another stressor or another signal to maintain that myosin integrity instead of estrogen stimulating it. So if we're lifting heavy, we're kind of replacing what estrogen used to do to the muscle. So we're getting the stimulus to maintain contractile strength. We're getting the stimulus to maintain lean mass and to also develop lean mass. But the backside of it is as we do that, when we get into perimenopause and we're becoming more insulin resistant, we're losing a pathway for muscle protein synthesis, which comes from insulin and estrogen. So we need to back it up with amino acids. So this is lifting heavy and backing it up within 30 minutes of a really good dose of amino acids. So we know that for perimenopausal women, we're looking at around three to five grams of leucine, high quality leucine with other essential amino acids, which means around 35 to 40 grams of high quality protein. So it's a big hit, not a small dose. We're overcoming the body going, yeah, I don't want lean mass our anabolic resistance. So we need to hit it hard with that resistance training. We need to back it up with protein so that we have a really strong stimulus for muscle adaptation and we have the nutrition to support that signal. Otherwise, we don't get the lean mass development that we want because estrogen used to come in and stimulate myosin and then estrogen used to be like, sweet, we can make things available to build this lean mass. But when we start to have that flux, we don't get that signal. So we need to look at what's lift heavy for that stimulus and back it up with protein to get that reparation and that muscle protein synthesis going. Okay. And is that like the only change that women need to do? Like if today I start lifting really heavy and I start eating a lot of protein right after I lift, is that going to like fix all my menopausal issues with gaining weight and not sleeping or is there more to it? Because you mentioned nutrition and exercise and I know protein oh, yeah. is the nutrition piece of it. Yeah, yeah. There's more to it. But the big rock right there, if women were to do that, they would have so much better body composition outcomes and more control of their vasomotor symptoms and their menopausal issues. 
because we know that lifting and especially power-based training is so beneficial for women who are in their cross the lifespan, but really in particular when they hit their early 40s onwards. It helps mobilize belly fat. We see this. It doesn't stimulate belly fat mobilization in men, but it does in women. And one of the things that happens with peri and postmenopause is that you get that deep visceral belly fat. So we want to be able to mobilize it. So heavy lifting does that. Resistance training and protein does that. So that's the big rock that I want everyone to take away. So if we're looking at all the other cascade of things that we have, we have more weight gain, we have poor sleep, we have vasomotor symptoms, we have anxiety, depression, brain fog, and feeling like you're tired but wired, right? All of those things that get put into, oh, you're just a stressed woman, let's put you off on the side kind of thing. <laughs> um, it's not true. <laughs> The other thing we need to do is we need to remember that by the nature of being women, we are very endurant focused. We are very capable of going long and slow because of our physiology from being XX, not hormone induced, but just by the nature of being born with XX chromosomes. But we don't want to perpetuate that. We are already really capable of going long and slow. If we go long and slow, what does the body do? It stores fat. It reduces power, slows you down, stores more fat. The other thing about going long and slow is it also increases our already elevated baseline of cortisol. This is why women feel tired but wired. Hmm. Because we have an increase in our cortisol, a baseline cortisol, we just can't get into a parasympathetic drive. So if we're doing a lot of 45-minute boot camp class, we're doing brisk walking, we're doing our 60 to 90 minute runs, depending on what you're training for. That puts you smack dab in the middle of this modern intensity zone that just perpetuates you to go long and slow and put on belly fat. It's not a strong enough stimulus to be that external stimulus we're looking for to change body comp and to improve fitness overall. What we want to do is we want to polarize our training. We need to go super hard from a cardiovascular standpoint, we want to do high-intensity interval training, but not an F45 or an Orange Theory type boot camp type class, because that puts you in that modern intensity. I'm talking about you're doing maybe one minute 30 as your interval, as hard as you can for that one minute, one minute 30, and then you're recovering for twice as long. Or even better, doing sprint interval training, where you're doing full gas of 10 by 20 seconds on and you're having a minute off. So when you go back to do that 20 seconds, you are neuromuscularly recovered, your heart rate's come down, and you can hit it really hard again. Because we're trying to get you up there on that rating and perceived exertion of nine to 10. Because when you're hitting that super, super high stimulus, the body's like, oh my gosh, I need to be able to overcome this stress. What do I need to do to overcome that stress? I need to have carbohydrate available, glucose available. I need to be able to produce power and speed. And I need to be able to regenerate quickly. So we're looking at the post-exercise recovery standpoint is we have a boost in growth hormone, we have a boost in antioxidant status, and we have a boost in anti-inflammatory status. Those three things are super important when we're perimenopause because we have an increased systemic inflammation because our body's going through so much flux and we have additional cortisol up. We have greater predisposition to soft tissue injury because we have systemic inflammation. So we need that growth hormone boost. And because we are under more stress, 
with these changes, we have a higher oxidation status. We want that antioxidant. So if we're doing that high intensity work, we're getting more bang for a buck than just body composition. We're also countering what's happening to the body with this hormone. Hmm. So when we're looking at what do we need to do, stay out of that long, slow, moderate intensity stuff. You're polarizing. You're doing super high intensity. And then on other days, you're doing embarrassingly slow, like 80-year-old people walking past you. So you're just kind of time on the feet, enjoying, relaxing. Because when you're doing that kind of super low intensity, it can help with the parasympathetic drive. So if we can activate our parasympathetic and have that uh, relaxed feeling, that helps with our sleep. So you really have to focus on polarizing. Okay. I have lots of questions. One question I have, though, is about the sprint interval training. After I've read your book, I've been trying to incorporate that. And I have noticed that, especially when I'm running, I am a very slow runner, by the way. I have a very difficult time. Like if I do, let's say, a 30 second sprint, I don't get to like the 85% mark of my heart rate until like the last five seconds of a sprint. Am I doing any good at that point? Like as long as I'm hitting it within the 30 seconds, like does that quote unquote count for the reactions in my body that you're talking about? Or like, because I wasn't there the last 25 seconds, is it not helping? Does my question make sense? It makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. And the answer is yes, it is helping. Okay. Because the more you do it, the faster your body's going to respond. So as you said, you just started incorporating that. And it doesn't matter if you're a slower or fast runner. It's all about the activation and the muscle recruitment and then getting your heart rate up. And as you get more proficient at doing it, because you've been doing it more often, your heart rate's going to come up a lot faster and it's going to drop a lot faster. Oh. So it's just the aspect of getting a bit fitter because for the most part, most women haven't tried to do that unless they've been training specifically on the track for something, right? So when we're talking about people who are running recreationally to hit a 10K or a 5K or half marathon, no one ever really tries to go that fast. So it takes coordination. And your body's like, whoa, what's going on? And it takes time for your body to adjust. So it might be six weeks. It might be months before you really start to be like, yes, so this is why we start off slow. You might start off with three or four of those, and then you can build up to the them. Okay. Because that was the next question I had. Like you mentioned that polarizing, which I've been trying to do myself. And I have trouble, like if I try to do one of those days, I'm good with the sprint interval training. But if I try to do two of those days, I find that I'm like exhausted. So I don't know if that just requires, like you were saying, like more time. My body needs to get used to that. Or if I'm going too hard on the other days, I'm just trying to kind of figure it all out. <laughs> yeah. And the idea that everyone should have is less volume, more intensity. So the more intensity you do, the less days you have to work out. Although a lot of us want to do something every day. Yes. Right. Yes. Because it's stress release. It's getting outside. It's our own time. So we have to reframe what we're thinking, what we're doing. So if you know that anything over two days in a week just really knocks you for six, then the other days are super low and you're working on mobility. You might be exploring something. One of the other things, instead of doing like flat sprint work, maybe you're finding some stairs and you're doing stair bounding. So maybe first it's one step at a time and then maybe the next time it's taking two at a time, but pushing through, you're not running up, but you're pushing through to get your heart rate up. So you're pushing through the heels. So it's like lunges up the stairs. There's lots of different types of ways that you can put that intensity in as well as then going, hey, I'm exploring, I'm back at any down. 
of getting that fresh air and that mental solace is really important. And it's like, okay, what is my week and how much can I take in this week? We also look at it as you do two weeks of that kind of stuff. And then you have one week of complete deload. We talk about deload as that full recovery where you're just relaxing. You're doing some yoga. You're doing some hikes. You might take a leisurely spin to the pool, whatever it is. But you're just really trying to get the body to absorb that hard training so that then you're adapting to it. And then the next two weeks, you can focus again. So it's about getting that full recovery, not necessarily the day-to-day, but across the month, getting that full recovery so you can have some really good solid blocks. The other thing that we tend to think about is the way that we've all grown up is the calories in, calories out. You have to work out every day if you want to lose weight, and it's just not true, especially in this time frame. We need to have those days where we're fully like invested in mobilization, recovery, with the eye to, if I do this, then when it's time to hit it hard, I'm fully vested and able to hit it hard. So it takes some time to phase in to being able to do that high, high intensity work as well as it takes time to phase in to be able to do heavy lifting. So it's not like, okay, everyone go to the wolves. Let's do this right now. It's let's take some time. Let's phase ourselves in first to the sprint stuff because most people can really understand what sprint is. And we might do one session a week. And then we're looking at, okay, what are the other things I'm doing this I know I'm not supposed to be doing modern intensity, but maybe I'm doing some hits. So instead of 30 seconds on, I'm going to do two minutes on my other high intensity day. So you're lengthening the length of that interval session. It's a little bit lower intensity, but it's still hitting that polarization. And then when you get through that two-week block and in that recovery, you're starting to look at your mechanics. How do I move? What do I need to work on? What kind of drills do I need to do? If I'm going to get into strength training, how do I move? Maybe I need to invest a PT for one day to look at my mechanics, give me hints of how to move. And really understanding that you have to have good mechanics before you start adding a lot of load. So it, it does take some time. And if we think about it, it's not just a quick hit to get fit for a race. We're looking at we want to spend the time because this is how we want to be able to train and move for the rest of our life. Yes. And to that point, You mentioned like perimenopause. That's the key time to really start focusing on these things. What if you have already reached menopause? Like, is it too late to incorporate these things? No, absolutely not. No, 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 no. There's a hesitancy for a lot of the medical community and PGs to tell women who reach menopause to lift heavy and do high intensity work because we have this social stigma that all of a sudden women are frail and fat and can't do anything. But No, absolutely not. Wherever you are in this whole menopause transition or if you've transitioned already and you're in post-menopause, it's definitely not too late. We see more and more research coming out showing that high-intensity work and power-based training and early post-menopause really does help with body composition and bone mineral density. So we're looking at how are we getting our muscle integrity back? How are we maintaining bone? Not only does it do that, it also improves balance and coordination. So when you get older... Or even if you're in late postmenopause, you start doing this stuff. That when you are doing power-based training or high-intensity work, say you're walking and you accidentally slip off a curb, you can catch yourself and you don't fall. So this is the other benefit of doing that proprioceptive heavy lifting, recruiting fibers, understanding where you are in space and time, because it definitely helps prevent the fall risk and the other injury risk as we get to the later stages of our life. And that is so important. I mean, because if you get injured and you can't move, then it's just going to 
reduce your quality of life so fast, so fast. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the other question I have is like, I totally hear what you're saying about like keeping the polarizing of the different loads and stuff. But when you're talking about weightlifting, as you know, I'm a big fan of tonal. And so, (laughs) so there are days that the programs like on tonal, they don't all kind of have that one through six reps that you're talking about. So like if you wanted to incorporate a couple of days of the powerlifting that you're talking about, but also incorporate other kinds of weightlifting, are you still getting any benefit from that? Is a woman who's kind of going through all these changes, are you still getting a benefit from it other than I love it? <laughs> I know. It's a hard question to answer. From a physiological standpoint, any resistance training is good resistance training. Okay. The understanding that you can also overdo it. So if we're looking at heavy power-based stuff and you're doing that two to three times a week, and then the other days, because you love it, then you're really lightening the load. You're not doing your 70%. Maybe you're doing 50% and you're really working on technique. So you're working through it. You're doing the programs, but you're looking at it as more of a technique and a recovery type session instead of a cardiovascular or weight. There's never late and there's never a wrong time to work on technique. Because we can all do it all the time. Even the Olympic lifters who are gold medalists at the Olympics are still working on technique. So if we're looking at, hey, Tonal has this fantastic system and this great program that I love and I love the coach. Okay, well, I'm going to do this program because I love it and I want to be involved, but I'm going to drop my weight significantly and make sure that I'm spot on form where I'm really engaging the core. I'm getting lower in my squat. So it is working all of that mobilization and technique within the session. Oh, that's a really great point. And I guess I didn't really think about the benefit of working on your mobilization from lowering the weight. That's an excellent point. Wow, that's a good point. Is there anything else that as we've kind of talked through all this that you feel like women should specifically know about losing weight and menopause or perimenopause that we haven't covered? I mean, I know there's like a million things, but <laughs> there is. But when we talk about it from a nutrition standpoint, The other thing that's super, super important is the timing of your food intake and the timing of protein intake in your meals. Okay. So when we're looking at losing weight, especially in this time period where our body is kind of fighting it and going, no, we need to conserve because I don't know what's going on. We need to make sure that we don't do fasted training because if we do fasted training, it increases cortisol. We already have enough. What does cortisol do? It is the stimulus for conserving but it also doesn't allow you to hit the high intensity because your body is already on the cortisol. It's not really going to let you do polarized stuff. Oh, that makes total sense. Yeah. You know, kind of in a moderate zone, even though you're trying really hard, you still aren't able to get to that high intensity because the cortisol is like, whoa, you're already stressed. A little bit of food first. You know that 15 to 20 grams of protein before resistance training significantly helps with that session but it also helps keep your resting metabolic rate elevated after resistance training. So, so if you, you eat the protein to, before, it also yeah. helps your RMR after. After. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Carbohydrate, not the same. Okay. If you're going to do a cardiovascular session, it's 30 grams of carbohydrate added to that 15 grams of protein. Because that helps you get through the cardiovascular session, drops cortisol, and helps your RMR post. Because cardiovascular work is different than strength work. They use different types of fueling. If you're doing the strength stuff correctly, it's all neuromuscular and it's not cardiovascular at all. It's strong neural and the muscle aspects. So you're looking at ATP, you're looking at 
the need for amino acids really soon after and also during for the central nervous system. If you're looking from a cardiovascular standpoint, it's breaking down carbohydrate. It's breaking down fatty acids for fuel availability. So you need the extra carbohydrate in order to get into the right fueling mechanisms for that top-end work. And I have to go back for a second. You mentioned that if you have that cortisol level, that you aren't necessarily getting into those super, super high intensities. How do you know if you are? <laughs> like in my head, I've always been like, oh, if my heart rate is at that 85%, I'm doing that. But if you're lifting, like you said, it's not cardio. So how do you know that you're doing as much as you can do? If you are lifting, it's not about heart rate. Right. It's about load. So what you're talking about is we'll look at the lifting part. If you're looking at one to six reps and we're lifting heavy, by the time you get to the third set, you can't do six. If you can do six, you haven't lifted heavy enough. Okay. So we're looking at proper form throughout all the sets. So we want to look at failure fatigue and we want to try to get to that failure fatigue point by the third, maybe fourth rep in the last set. Okay. So you should work to failure when you're trying to do the powerlifting. That is the goal. Yes. Okay. From a cardiovascular standpoint, heart rate isn't always the best metric. Right. Right. So this is why we look at rating of perceived exertion. Because if we are pushing ourselves to that nine or 10 and our heart rate isn't quite following, we're still pushing and going as hard as we can, then the heart rate will catch up or maybe it won't. Kind of like what you're talking about with your sprints, right? Your Mm -hmm. heart rate takes a little bit of time to get up there. But if you start and you're like, I'm going as hard as I can, then you're going as hard as you can. That is what we're after. We want to rely more on our more psychological and intuitive feedback Because if we're looking at heart rate or respiratory rate, there's a lag time and it's more of a tool if you've had poor sleep, which often happens, or caffeine, or you're dehydrated, all those can affect heart rate metrics. That's fascinating. Okay, this is just for me personally, whenever I'm trying to run that fast, like I have always been looking at how I'm breathing and what my heart rate is. So technically I could go a little bit faster, but I can't keep it for very long. Like I can't stay at that. So Which should I be focused on then? What should I be like if I literally need to turn this the speed down? That was as far as I could go. Like that's where I hit the button. Like that's where I need to slow down. Not paying attention to my heart rate necessarily. Am I hearing you right? (laughs) Just imagine like you're watching a whole bunch of kids on the playground and they're like, ah, it's 10, get away from them. And they just go as fast as they can and they don't care about how they look or how they're breathing or any of that. They're just like, ah, get out of here. That's what you're after in your sprints. Okay. You want to pretend you're a kid trying not to get tagged. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's fair so fun into it too. Yeah. <laughs> or pretend you're getting chased by a big woolly dog. You're like, ah, get out of here. <laughs> okay. So even if I can only do that for 10 seconds, that's as fast as I should go. <laughs> right. Okay. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> All right. Anything else we've missed? This has been so, so beneficial. So much information here. I know you have so much knowledge in your head and, and I know I'm asking for you to like narrow it down to like 10 seconds of information, but. (laughs) Yeah. So it's the fueling before and after making sure that you're getting between 20 and 30 grams of protein at every meal and 15 grams at every snack. But here we have, because that keeps a a even level of amino acids, which we need at this point in our life is we need it for brain health. And we also need it for our muscles and muscle turnover. And then we talk about carbohydrate and because we're becoming more insulin resistant, we need to look at fruit and veg and whole grains. 
that we're not looking at quick hits of processed food, not reaching for the protein bar because there's still quick hits of carbohydrate in that, unless you're going and you're like, I haven't eaten and I need to eat something right before training. Then that's something to do. But we need to have the eye of lots of fruit and veg for gut health, as well as helping with insulin sensitivity. So like choosing things like sweet potatoes over the potato chips, for example. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I know. Potato chips are okay every once in a while. Yeah. Right? Yeah, the 80-20 absolutely. rule. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Rule. That's yeah. right. And we talk a lot about that in my pro because it's like, it's still life. You're not going to eat exactly. 100% clean all the time. That's ridiculous. Nobody can do that. Because no, then we call that an eating disorder. Right. That's right. There's, it's called orexia, where you're eating too clean all the time and afraid to try to get into some of the more pleasurable type foods that give your body the sense of, ah. Yeah. And we don't want that. No, we don't want that. Well, Dr. Sims, thank you so much for your time today. What's the best place for listeners to find you and your books and all of your amazing information? The website, drstacysims.com, says DR, has everything that we're doing. It has our courses. It has our little micro learning blurbs. Um, it has links to all the research that I'm doing and other things that are upcoming. So that's like the big hold pattern. And then on social, Dr. Stacey Sims on Facebook and Insta, where we post little tidbits of information. Hopefully to help people and keep people proud of, of what all we're doing. Yeah, it's a lot of great information. I follow you in all the places. So. Oh, thanks. <laughs> hey. Listeners, that's all for this week. You can find all the MetPro Method episodes anywhere you get podcasts, or you can go to metpro.co slash podcast. Please be sure to follow the show and rate and review. That lets other people know what they can expect. And you could also learn more about MetPro at metpro.co. I'm your host, Crystal O'Keefe, and I'll be back next week. Until then, remember, consistency is key. 